Friends, if you brought a Bible, you can open it to the book of 1 John. It's toward the end. No shame in using that table of contents. In case you didn't get there when Charlene was reading. We're going to be looking at the end of 1 John chapter 2, the beginning of 1 John chapter 3. Before I begin this, this sermon, I want to very quickly recommend a book to you. If you were here last Sunday, you may remember that I preached from 1 John 2, where John says in verse 22, 23, whoever confesses the Son has the Father. We talked about the importance of confessing the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I think we often talk and hear and to some degree think about the work of Christ, what he's done for us, but I don't think we often talk or hear or think about the person of Christ. I argued last Sunday that his work is only as valuable as the worth of his person. Go back and listen to that message if you weren't here. But what I want to do right now is recommend a very short book to you. I'll hold it this way. So you can see how short it is. Uh, This is a book called A Christian's Pocket Guide to Jesus Christ by Mark Jones, An Introduction to Christology. That's a big word for a very simple meaning, namely, who is Jesus? And if you've ever heard Christian people say things like, well, he's fully God, he's fully man, and you thought, well, no way. That sounds like a contradiction. Who is this guy? This is a really simple, short no more than like 70, 75 pages overview of the person of Christ. And I want to encourage you to check this out in the bookshop this week. I'm going to be recommending different books in the course of our study of 1 John. This is one I read a few weeks ago and really liked as a short overview. So check that out. Well worth getting. All right, Lord, would you grant grace now as I seek to preach this good word. I don't know what your your calendar looks like the next few weeks, uh, but typically this time of year, graduation season is upon us. How many of you are going to be graduating or going to graduation, something associated with graduation? Some of you. Yeah, that's right. And, And with graduation season comes a ritual of sorts where those who are older feel obliged to bring words of wisdom in speeches and cards and the like to to those who are younger. At least that's the idea. I would argue that some words of counsel, wisdom, are better than others. I would also argue that it's hard to improve on the wisdom, the counsel that King Solomon gave his son in the book of Proverbs. If you're looking to write a graduation card, check out the book of Proverbs. It includes this exhortation in Proverbs 6, verse 6, for his son to be diligent in preparing today for the needs of tomorrow. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want like an armed man. 
You know, I imagine that, that many of you in, in one way or another follow or try to follow Solomon's counsel in preparing today for the needs of tomorrow. You know, it's why we work hard in school or work hard in your job or, or work to build up an emergency fund if you're into Dave Ramsey or buy insurance or, or discipline our children or, or take care of our physical health or, or save for retirement or a thousand other actions that reflect a diligence to live in the present in light of the future. And even if you're not a Christian, I would argue that you see the wisdom of that. And that there are ways in your life, even if you're not a follower of Christ, where right now you're seeking or wanting to seek or resolved January 1 to try to seek to live today in light of tomorrow. You know, God warns us over and over over again in his word, friends, that there is a future event that demands our preparation more than any other. There's a coming reality that urges us to get ready before it's too late. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, stay awake. For you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Whether or not you're a follower of Christ, the most significant event waiting in your future, friend, is the return of Jesus. You can't avoid it. You can't escape it. You can ignore it and be foolish. To deny it is deadly because it's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back and judge the living and the dead. Now, I would argue that many of us in this room agree with everything I just said. You know that's true. You believe that's true. You're a follower of of Christ. But just because you acknowledge Jesus is coming back doesn't mean you're living accordingly. I think all too often the the return of Christ is, is like this data point out there in, in space. We, we agree it's going to happen. We acknowledge, mentally at least, it's inevitable. But that data point has absolutely no effect on the choices we're making right now. We, we live today in light of tomorrow in hundreds of areas in our life. Except the one area that's most important. The return of Christ. That's, that's the danger the Apostle John is, is combating in these five verses. 
the danger of not living today in light of tomorrow, namely the return of Christ. He's writing to an original audience, but, but the God who inspired these words intended these words for far more than the original audience. He, he writes them, he speaks to them even this morning to you, friend, because he loves you. John's writing to Christians, as he says in 1 John 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you're not a Christian, John wants you to know you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, he wants you to be assured of salvation. He wants you to know whether your faith is genuine because that's his goal. He asks a really important question. He turns your attention to the return of Christ and he asks this, are you living for that day? Are you living in light of the return of Christ or are you living according to some other principle? Is the return of Christ governing your life or are the passions and desires of your flesh governing your life? Make no mistake, friend, right now, something is governing your life. You can't help but worship something. Something's compelling the choices that you're making. And the Lord's exhortation to you, the Lord's command to you in these verses is to not ignore his return by allowing it to exist as a data point that has utterly no effect on the choices you're making. If you're in Christ... His future appearing is intended by God to motivate you to do two things. Two things John gives us right here. First, to motivate us, motivate you, if you're in Christ, to embrace your new identity by being who you are. That's going to be point one of this sermon, by the way. (laughs) Okay? And second... To respond to the return of Christ, it's intended to motivate us, motivate you, to hope in your future glory by becoming what you will be. So what does the return of Christ compel us to do? Two things, to be who we are and to become who we'll be. And if you're thinking, what in the world do you mean? Hold on. (laughs) Stay with me, okay? Point number one, the return of Christ compels us to embrace our new identity, embrace our new identity by becoming or being rather who we are, being who we are. Look at 1 John 3, 1. John John begins with a one word command. I love simple commands. I've got little kids. Simple commands are the way to go. What's he say? See, behold, look, there's something John wants us to notice And it has something to do, he tells us, with the kind of love that the Father has shown us. You know, I think we do well to remember, friends, before we even look at what kind of love has the Father shown us. The fact that God loves us at all is remarkable. He's supremely holy. He's intrinsically righteous. We're not. We're sinners. 
We're rebels. We, we don't deserve the love of God. We merit condemnation. As Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, which is what makes the divine announcement in Romans 5.6 utterly astonishing. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's astonishing. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That the cross of Christ, friends, stands. It it confronts us as an eternal, immovable testimony to God's love for you. And in every suffering, every, every trial, every loss, every sorrow, it remains. The cross of Christ remains. It, it, it beckons you. It, it calls you. It commands you to humble yourself and repent and believe the gospel. What's that? That Jesus lived, died, and rose from the grave for you so that you could be reconciled to God. Why did he do that? Because he loves you. The cross stands as a testimony to that. And, And yet, there's more. There's more. That the tide of God's love for you doesn't stop with your reconciliation. It rushes onward, further and deeper until it secures your adoption. See where this is going? Galatians 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, hear that. You are sons. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave. Some of you need to hear that right now. You are no longer a slave. You're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're talking about being who we are. This is who we are. Parents, just imagine how you would feel if this past week someone killed your son. Not accidentally, intentionally, deliberately, maliciously. I have three sons. I love them fiercely. What, what would you feel? I can tell you what I'm feeling right now. What would you feel toward the person who did that? Could, could, you, could you look at them? Could you speak to them? 
Could, could you even be in the same room as them? You know what I'd never think of doing? Sending that man or woman who killed my son a letter in which I declare my love for them. An offer to adopt them as my own child. Wouldn't think of that. Do you, do you realize, if you're a Christian, that that is precisely what God has done for you? God hasn't just forgiven your sin and declared you righteous. He's done something even more audacious, even more scandalous, something, something beyond all we could ask or imagine. If you're in Christ, he's made you his child. He's adopted you. You're, you're not just, Christian, a forgiven person. Okay? You're, you're not just a righteous person. You're not just part of the Christian community. You're his son. You're his daughter. He, Jesus isn't just your Lord. God isn't just your Savior. God is your Father. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called what? Who are we? Who are we? Children of God. And so we are. That, that second half of the sentence there that we should be called children of God, that's crucial. Why? Why? Well, how do we, how do we know that we're children of God? Think about this. How do we know that we didn't just decide to call ourselves children of God because we live in a materialistic dog-eat-dog universe and we needed something to make us feel significant and special, otherwise we'd just give up and die? Well, friend, it's because God called us. God called us. The ultimate explanation, the singular reason that you're able to call God your father is that God first called you his child. His call is authoritative. His call is gracious and his call is effectual. When, when God calls, stuff goes down. When God says, let there be light, there's light. When God walks in front of a tomb and says, Lazarus, get your butt out of here. <laughs> he comes out. When God calls, things, things happen. His call, as Paul says in Romans 11, is irrevocable. For the gifts and calling of God are, are irrevocable. What, what does that mean? Well, that means that, that earthly fathers may abandon you. Or earthly fathers may disown you. Your heavenly father will not. He won't. And that means that every day of your life, Christian, every situation, every, every good day, every bad day, every between day, you have an identity in Christ that no one can take away from you. You know what that is? You know, you know what the biblical answer is to who are you? You're a child of God. That's your identity if you're in Christ. Because God has made you part of his royal family. You're a child of God. That's who you are. 
But, you know, we need to be honest. We, we live in a world that, that urges us to find our identity in all kinds of other things, right? Our, our performance at work, whether or not you've got a ring on your finger, <laughs> achievements of your kids, the appearance of your physical body, the amount of, of money in your bank account, the trendiness of your home, the number of degrees you've earned, the number of friends you have, and a thousand other things that are not inherently bad. So what's the problem? <laughs> Where do we go wrong? Well, it's simple. It's simple. We try to earn our identity instead of receiving it as a gift from God. Why? Because we don't want an identity that we haven't earned. <laughs> we want an identity that we can point to and say, I achieved that. I worked for that. I earned that. I made that happen. I forged that identity in the furnace of my dedication. And if you do that, friend, I warn you, I warn you that it's only a matter of time before that idol, that false God that you were living for, that identity comes crashing to the ground. Crashing to the ground. You will fail a test. You will get a B. <laughs> Some of you laugh. Some of you need to hear that. You'll lose your job. The stock market will crash. Your, your boyfriend will leave you. Your spouse will betray you. Your kids will reject you. Someone will mistreat you. Someone will have the audacity to slander you. And you'll wake up one day and realize that the entire reputation that you so carefully forged and maintained and propped up with all your PR efforts is gone. And if you think, if you dare to think, you're one of those rare individuals who can avoid all those things through unceasing hard work and perfection, I promise you, you're going to kill yourself trying to do that. And maybe everyone around you thinks you're the paradigm of success. You've made it. Look at them. They've arrived. Oh, if I could have that identity. Look at them. Maybe they'll write a book. Teach me how to become what they are. But you know what? If you're writing the book and you're honest, you know better. You know, and they don't see the sleepless nights. They don't see the inner anxiety, the constant worry that comes from thinking that if I make a single Mistake. If I make one miscalculation, my entire identity as a human being will come crashing down. But you feel that. You know that because you're living that. Friend, God created you to find your identity in one thing and one thing alone. The unspeakable privilege of being his child. 
If you've been adopted through Christ, you have an unshakable identity that they can't be taken away from you. It's not in development. It's not up for grabs. It's fixed. It's eternal. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. That's your identity. And remembering that, where are we going to go with that? Remembering your divine identity will do two things. Two things, okay? Both of which John points out in these verses. So look at the end of verse one. End of verse one. First thing remembering our divine identity will do, we're talking about embracing our divine identity. The first thing that'll do is it will inform your expectations. What does John say? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. What's John saying? Well, he's reminding us that, that if our older brother Jesus was misunderstood and alienated and rejected by the world, then we shouldn't be surprised when we experience exactly the same thing. You know, I, I love the fact, just to illustrate this a bit here, that I've been able to marry into another family. Uh, both my family, my wife's family are in this church and it is a ridiculously great blessing. We, we have good relationships, praise God for that, uh, with, with all of our parents, in-laws. Don't take that for granted. But, but try as I might, there will always be some things about her family that I can't fully understand. And there will always be some things about my family, immediate family, that my wife can't fully understand. I'm just saying the obvious. Well, if you're part of the royal family of God, if, if you're one of his adopted sons or daughters, why would you expect the world around you to understand you? You shouldn't. Nor should you be alarmed when they think that some of the choices you're making are, are crazy, okay? In fact, if everything you're doing makes total sense to the world around you, then something's not right. Something's not right. And remembering your divine identity, child of God, won't, won't take away the pain of the world's rejection, but remembering your divine identity, embracing that divine identity, well, that'll guard you from despair because you won't be surprised when they don't get you or understand you. That's the first thing that remembering our divine identity does. First way we embrace it. We, we let it inform our expectations. Here's the second. We let it inform our expectations. That's the first. Here's the second implication. Remembering our divine identity, we let it transform our actions. It informs our expectations, how the world's going to think of us, and it should transform our actions. And here's where I really want to get to the heart of what I said earlier, that embracing our new identity, embracing our divine identity as a child of God should compel us to be who we are. Okay? Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, what in the world does John mean when he says that some group of people have been born of him or born of God? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the miracle of regeneration. Okay, the moment that God mercifully and sovereignly imparts spiritual life into a heart that's spiritually dead such that we're able to repent and believe the gospel. 
That's what he's talking about when he, when he says born again. Okay, that, that's why becoming a Christian, listen to this, isn't about deciding to go to church or deciding to clean up your life. Becoming a Christian doesn't, doesn't begin with something you decide to do. Becoming a Christian begins with something God decides to do. Namely, what does God decide to do? To grant you the ability to see your need for a savior, to recognize that Jesus is that savior, and to lean the entire weight of your life on him. God has to do that. You you can't wake up a morning and say, I feel like doing that. You can't, you're dead. But when God makes you alive, able. When he works that miracle, you're born again. He makes your heart alive and he calls you his child. When that happens to a person, that person, please hear this, cannot and will not remain the same. Why not? Why not? Why does their life begin to change? But why do they begin to turn from practicing wickedness to practicing righteousness, from from doing what they want to do to doing what God commands them to do? It's because they have a new identity. They have a new nature. The the whole point here John's making is that, that obedience, that a transformation of life, please hear this, isn't something that we staple onto ourselves by sheer force of will, okay? It's the overflow of a new heart. It's the inevitable reflection of of an identity, a new identity as a newborn child of God. That's the wellspring of genuine obedience. Okay, I I love how John be a little confusing at first, but But he really makes his point in verse 29 and then we have to work backwards to verse 28, okay? So so follow with the logic here. If you're born of God, what happens? You practice righteousness. Why? Because God is righteous and if you become his child, the inevitable result of your new identity is that you join God in practicing righteousness. John Stott says it this way. The child exhibits the parent's character. Because he shares the parent's nature. The child exhibits the parent's character because he shares the parent's nature. A person's righteousness is thus the evidence of his new birth, not the cause or condition of it. That's right. That's right. We don't practice righteousness in order to become spiritually alive. We practice righteousness because God has made us spiritually alive. Okay, practicing righteousness isn't, isn't, is ultimately about being who we are. About learning to, to live out our new identity in every area of life. Why is that so important, Williams? Preacher, why are you just going on and on about, you got to live out this new identity? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is coming back. Okay? And only those who abide in him by practicing righteousness will be confident and not ashamed when he returns. Look look back to verse 28. And now little children abide in him. Give me a decent reason why, John. Okay? So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him from Jesus in shame at his coming. Okay, so so remembering our divine identity, embracing our divine identity doesn't just inform our expectations, it transforms our life. Why? Two reasons. 
One, we remember that only those who are walking in obedience to the word of God will be saved when Jesus comes back. And second, we rejoice that our obedience isn't just necessary or possible. It's the natural and indeed the inevitable overflow of a heart that's been made alive by God. He gives you a new identity and you cannot but obey. We need to remember that. And this is especially important in a Christian culture that increasingly mistakes the grace of God for a cheap grace that commands no obedience and requires no holiness. Because when the battle against temptation and sin is raging, there there is great power, brothers and sisters, in remembering that the choice before you isn't just, will I do what God says is right or will I do what God says is wrong? The choice before you is this, will I live out my new identity as a child of God? Are you going to live in keeping with your new identity or are you going to live in denial of who you are? In the moment of temptation, you know what feels natural? You know what feels like your identity? Little testimony here. Sin. Sin does, right? Sin feels natural. It feels like sin is who we are. If you're a Christian, that's a lie. That's a lie. Sin is not who you are. You're a child of God. He's given you a new nature, which means it's no longer sin that's natural. It's obedience that's natural. Think about that. That doesn't mean obedience is easy. It doesn't mean embracing your new identity by being who you are is easy. But it does mean that when you choose to practice righteousness, you are choosing to do what God has called, commanded, and saved you to do as a child of God. So let's embrace our new identity by by being who we are. That's the the first thing that his return compels us to do. Embrace your new identity by, by being who you are. Obey for that reason. Okay, here's the second. Here's the second. We want to embrace our new identity by being who we are. Second, we want to hope in our future glory by becoming what we will be. Look look at 1 John 3 verse 2. What's he say? Beloved, we are God's children now. Just keep smacking us in the face with this new identity. We are God's children now. And what we will be, hold on a sec, has not yet appeared? What's he saying? Well, he's saying that, reminding us really of something that we see over and over again in the Bible. For every aspect of our salvation, okay, your, your justification, your sanctification, your glorification, your adoption, many more, there are, there's a sense in which all of those things are both already and not yet. So follow me here. In the case of our adoption, we already are God's children. John just keeps saying that. Hello, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children. Right now in the present, a radical change in your identity has taken place if you're a Christian. He keeps coming back to that. Why? Because if you're in Christ, you might still sin. If you deny that, you're not even in Christ. (laughs) But you know what your identity is no longer? Your identity is no longer sinner. 
You still sin, but sin isn't your identity. What's your identity? It's child of the living God. So he reminds us of that. He reminds us of that. We're already adopted. We're already a child of God in one sense, but in another sense, our adoption is not yet. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're waiting to experience in full all the benefits of our royal inheritance. And John doesn't give us a lot of specific details. Like, well, here's the following four things you're going to inherit as a full son or daughter of God one day. But, but what he does tell us is amazing. What does he tell us? Verse 2. But we know what's going to happen to every child of God in the future. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. He doesn't say identical to him. He doesn't say you're going to become Jesus. There's only one, only will be one, eternally begotten, son of God, second person of the Trinity. Okay, we're not going to turn into lots of mini gods. But when Jesus comes back, if you're his follower, you are going to be perfectly transformed into his image. Think about this. You're going to be righteous as Jesus is morally righteous. You're not going to experience a single sinful desire or inclination. You're only going to desire and do what is pleasing to God. Your mind will no longer be ravaged by, by lies and deceit and falsehood. You'll know what's true. You'll understand what's true. You'll delight in what's true. Your, your body, we're just kind of moving across the spectrum here. Your body will no longer be ravaged by disease and sickness and death. That, that new body that Jesus received when he walked out of the tomb, that's going to be your body. Your heart, your, your mind, your body, completely, perfectly whole like Christ. That's your destiny, Christian. That's where this is all going. And how do we know that's going to happen? How do we know that when Jesus returns, we're going to be like him? Well, look back at verse 2. What's John say? We know when he appears, we shall be like him. Why, John? Because we shall see him as he is. Please hear this. There are only two outcomes to beholding the glory of Christ when he returns. And make no mistake, every eye will see him, even those that pierced him. In that moment, the glory of Christ when he returns, it will either consume you or it will transform you. Either way, the creature doesn't remain the same in the presence of the creator. Just to illustrate this, I I think of all the things that you and I have seen in the course of our life that have changed us. I thought this week about the, the birth of our first child, Ethan. And I, I remember seeing that little face and hands you know, as, he's, as he's lying in my arms and realizing I don't think my heart is ever going to be the same. If you're a parent, you know what I mean. There's a moment when, when you become a dad. It's like this whole part of your heart just changes. I felt for the first time what it, what it meant to be a father. I saw something that, that changed me. Do you realize that there's no change in the world more significant than the change that takes place 
when you see Jesus. And guess what? You don't have to entirely wait for him to come back. Praise the Lord to see him and begin to change. (laughs) It's not yet, but it's also already. Where does that come from? How can can we experience that today? 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Boy, that gets taken out of context a lot. Now listen to the context. And we all with unveiled face, what are we free to do because of the spirit? Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Notice three things about what Paul's saying here. One, the most important freedom in the world is the freedom from spiritual blindness to see the glory of God. Two, when we see the glory of the Lord, we're transformed into his image. And three, that transformation is happening right now. Right now. Paul doesn't say we will be transformed in his image. What does he say? You are being transformed into the same image. So, so where do we see the glory of God that causes us right now to be transformed, to become what will be? 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, there's that call again, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Which is precisely what happens as we read and meditate on the word of God. As Jesus himself said in in John 5, 37, it's the scriptures that bear witness to me. You want to be confronted with the glory of God? Well, Paul says it's found in the face of Christ. You want to see the face of Christ even before he returns? Look right here. It bears witness to him. And if we meditate on his word and and fix our mind on his word and, and dwell on his word, then something miraculous happens. You begin to change. Why? Because God has so ordained the universe that it's through beholding his glory that we become like him. It's what John's talking about in in 1 John 3, 3. Look there with me, verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, if you believe that that Jesus is going to return, that, that you're going to see him, that when you see him, you'll be perfectly transformed into his image. If you believe that, then that faith, that hope, if it's genuine, it will motivate you inevitably to do something. What's that? What will motivate you to fix the spiritual eyes of your heart on the glory of Christ by fixing the physical eyes of your body on the pages of his word. If you believe that Jesus is coming back, that one day you're going to be perfectly transformed into his image, then that faith, that hope, that confidence, if it's genuine, that will motivate you inevitably to fix your eyes on the glory of Christ by fixing your eyes on the pages of his word. And that's how we change. 
Sometimes it's imperceptible. Sometimes it feels like one step forward, four steps back. But God promises we will change. He will help us through his spirit as we fix our eyes on the glory of Christ and his word to become in this life what we will be when he comes back. That's a promise. And that's an implicit command in verse 3, by the way, to what? Purify yourself. Don't sit around waiting. I'm just waiting for God to purify me, hoping he shows up when I, by the time I'm 50. No, you get busy today purifying yourself as Jesus is pure. But please hear this. Don't separate the command in verse 3 from the reason for doing it in verse 2. Okay, what's the reason? Why do we purify ourselves? Well, among other reasons, because when you choose to obey, you are aligning yourself with God's divine agenda for your life. With the work that God has done, the work God is doing, the work God will do, which means what? When you are fighting so hard to become today what you one day will be, what are you doing? You are fighting on the winning team. That's what you're doing. You're becoming what you will be. We need to remember that. Jesus has promised to transform us one day into his image. You are going to be glorified, Christian. God's promised that to you. It's going to happen. And when your battle against sin and temptation is raging, there's a lot of power to be found in remembering the hope of your future glory. The choice before you isn't just, will I, will I do what God says is right? Will I do what God says is wrong? The choice is, will I cooperate with the sanctifying work that God is committed to doing in my life and will get done one day? Or am I going to resist that every step of the way? That's the choice that's before you. We got to remember that in, in the fog of war against besetting sin, when it's so easy to get disillusioned and discouraged, we've got to remember that the fight for present holiness is a fight to stay on the path of future glory. And if you're willing to fight for present holiness, to, to purify yourself as, as your king is pure, that he promises, he guarantees you a day. If you're willing to keep fighting, you have to keep fighting. He guarantees you a day when you are going to cross that finish line. He knows how hard it is. He knows he was tempted in every way. That sin that so easily entangles us. But you know what he tells you? You're going to make it. You're going to make it. What, why should I obey? Why well, should obey? Because God calls me, in light of his return, to be who I am, a child of God. In light of his return, he also calls me to become what I will be. That's the two halves of this verse, this section. No event in your future is more important than the return of Christ. And in light of his return, friend, your obedience really matters. You won't be saved on the final day if you are not found obeying Jesus on the final day. And you don't know when he is coming back, which means what? You should get busy practicing righteousness today. But praise God, he doesn't just say get busy obeying. He gives you power to obey. 
How does he give you power? Well, it's everything we've looked at. He gives us the promise of our adoption. He gives us the hope of our glorification. So that the former reminds us to what? Embrace our new identity by being who we are. What's the latter remind us to do? To hope in our future glory by becoming what we will be. This week, friend, think of those two things as two great big train engines designed to drive your obedience till he comes back. The, the promise of your adoption be who you are, the hope of your glorification, become what you will be. May that drive God-glorifying, gospel-centered obedience in this church this week. Let's pray. Lord, I am grateful that you never say, just do it. You're different than Nike. You give us power. Thank you for reminding us this morning through your word who we are. Thanks for being our father. We even get to call you that. It's just crazy. And thank you for the promise that you're going to get us across that finish line. That one day we're going to see you and when we see you, we're going to become just like you. Lord, make us a people that Respond to those massive promises by getting busy today. Being who we are, becoming what we'll be, that you might be glorified in this place, I pray. Amen.